And the Oscar goes to... Oh, thank you so much. This might be the one time I'm speaking. This is not a joke. Moonlight is one best picture. Could you double check the envelope? And I can't deny the fact that you like me. Thank you, life. Thank you, love. You guys are just standing up because you feel bad that I fell, and that's really embarrassing, but thank you. This is nuts. It's a tie. I'm the king of the world. And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar to... goes to... My only object is here is to try and get out of the What shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a... Could have been a contender. Fasten your... I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer, Captain. The census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fruit. For Frodo. Nice kid. Don't laugh! Can't stop what's coming. This ain't reality TV! Welcome to the Next Best Picture Podcast. And the Oscar goes to everything, everywhere. Hello everyone, welcome to the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. The time of recording is 11.10am on October 29th, 2023. Here to join me today for this week's episode, I have Sarah Clements. Hello, hello. Tom O'Brien. Hi everybody. And Cody Derricks. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody, to all the listeners out there that are getting dressed up. Be safe. That's always the number one concern for everyone when you're going out into the night. Uh, But also, too, I want to also send out our hearts to those in the world right now who need to be safe more than ever. Uh, There are some really terrible things going on out there. And, uh, you know, families are being destroyed. Lives are being destroyed. And it's it's not a very wonderful time right now so i just wanted to let everyone know that for those of you out there that are going through uh very difficult times right now we are thinking of you and our hearts go out to you with that said i do want to talk this week about the gotham award nominations we got those earlier this week we also are going through afi fest right now that's where tom and tom o'brien and i currently are uh, so we're going to talk about some of the world premieres that we've seen there and some of the movies that we're re-watching in some cases, too. Uh, we're also going to be going over the trailer for Freud's Last Session, which is one of the films that is playing here at AFI. We'll go over the polls. We'll answer fan questions. But before we get to any of that, uh, I want to know what everyone's been watching this past week. Cody, I imagine you are probably doing some Halloween catch-ups. You've probably been watching some scary movies on top of new ones, too. So... Fill us in. Tell us what you've been watching this past week. Yes. However, did you know that? Very good guess, Matt. I've been watching a lot of scary movies lately, some old, some new. I recently put out an article covering the history of horror video game adaptations in honor of Five Nights at Freddy's. So I've watched a lot of horror video games. So I'm sure some of you out there listening know that means I probably need therapy right now. Um, But I did get to see Five Nights at Freddy's in theaters the other day, uh, which was, I'm sorry to say, not great. It's extremely weirdly stuffed. (laughs) It's like almost a two-hour movie, which for a PG-13 horror movie based on a video game that at least the first one is quite simple and small is kind of confounding. And the plot makes no sense. It is overstuffed with exposition and backstory, and it's nonsensical. It's not very scary. 
I will say there were a lot of young folks, that sounds not to date myself, but there were a lot of young folk in the audience with Five Nights at Freddy's apparel and accessories and such. And from the sounds of their reactions afterwards, they clearly loved it. So as a horror fan myself, I understand the importance of PG-13 horror movies to get folks into the genre at a young age, as it did with me with films like The Exorcism of Emily Rose and other things like that. And The Ring from the 2002 remake. Um, so I'm happy this movie exists, even if I don't think it's very good. And I'm hoping it gets people to watch better horror movies. Um Otherwise, in terms of new releases, I haven't really done a ton of watching because it's been, like I said before, a lot of spooky season stuff, a lot of horror video game stuff. But, of course, I did finally get to check out Killers of the Flower Moon, which was pretty spectacular. I mean, it feels strange using effusive terminology like that on a movie that I think devastated me more than any movie I've seen in a long, long, long time. It is very upsetting. It is very important. It's very profound. But it's also very well-crafted in a way that you don't... I, I'm not one of those people who thinks it flies by. I did feel the three and a half hours. I don't know if maybe that was entirely necessary. But by the end of it, I felt like I had been on a journey. And I think getting to that type of feeling after a film is difficult. And it's something that only a master like Scorsese can accomplish. It's It, it had me feeling something completely new. So yeah, happy I finally got to see that. Um, really excited for whatever accolades are coming Lily Gladstone's way this season. I thought she was phenomenal and it might be the best Leo performance I've seen in a while. Um, I think my favorite performance of his is still Wolf of Wall Street, but this is a very close second for me. I think this is a top three Leo performance. Wolf is still tops for me at number one for sure, but Mm -hmm. I've seen the movie three times now and each time I watch it, Leo's performance just gets better and better and better for me. Yeah, I think it's an important performance in his filmography, especially because he's weaponizing the opposite of a lot of the things that got him famous. You know, he's playing somebody who is charmless and ugly. Like, he's styled in a way that is really unappealing. And yet it shows that he's still, because of the things afforded to him because of his skin color and his place in the world, he's still able to overcome those those issues and, you know, get something out of it in a really horrifying way. Uh, one last thing I did see, I wanted to mention in the name of uh, PG-13 horror movies, I got to watch The Boogeyman from this year, which I went into kind of not really expecting much. It's PG-13. I didn't hear much from it. Stephen King adaptations can be all over the place. I had a pretty good time with this one. <laughs> I'm going to recommend this one to somebody looking for something kind of jump scary and uh, just fun and spooky this Halloween season. It's also PG-13. But I found it actually quite scary. So I do recommend that one. That was one that I happened to miss when I was at Cannes earlier this year, and I still have not watched it yet. Is it? It's streaming on Peacock, right? I'm not sure. I had a DVD from the library, okay. so I can't tell you for sure. All right. Well, I'll get around to it at some point. I've heard good things. And maybe we'll talk about that a little later on when we discuss this week's poll. All right, Sarah Clements, on to you. What have you been catching up with this past week? Uh, well, last night I watched Master Gardener. Oh, Paul Schrader. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I really liked it, but it's one of those movies that has me at the end feeling like, should I have felt positively about this man? Because he's he was not a good man, not to spoil it, but <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So you see um, Joel Edgerton's character, how he used to be in the past, you know, And then now he's just trying to better himself and he's just out there tending to his flowers. And I'm like, you know, I'd want to hang out with this guy. He seems nice. 
but I don't know. It's just very conflicting. And but I feel like I do like films that make me feel like, you know, make me feel really torn by the end of it. But I really did like it. And Sigourney Weaver was is wonderful in it. Um, And then uh, going back to horror, um, one of my favorite horror films, I think, of all time is probably Hell House LLC, just because it was such a long it's a it's a um, for those who don't know, it's um. Sarah, found I love film. that movie. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> the movie's so good. Found footage film about like a haunted house in like a haunted hotel. Anyway, and it really, it's such a long time since a horror film really like messed me up to the point where I couldn't sleep. So I was so excited to watch the second film, which I did this week, and it sucked. So yeah. that was good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's what I watched this week. I will say I would recommend still watching the third one. It's better than the second one, and it has one sequence that's the scariest thing in the entire franchise that I watch all the time. So definitely, I would still recommend it. And there's a fourth one coming out on Monday. So tomorrow, actually. All right. Uh, Tom, because we're both at AFI Fest and we have some stuff to talk about specific to that festival, um, is there anything that you caught up with that's not AFI-related? I did sneak in a couple of movies before I came up here. Uh, that are non-AFI, and uh, the first one was I did manage uh, to catch Dicks the Musical. Oh, my God. <laughs> that movie. Folks, if you don't remember, that snared a very big midnight screening prize at Toronto. <laughs> that, for me, at least, seeing it in the sober, harsh light, I found it kind of exhausting, trying to shock us. I you know I years ago I mean I'm putting on my old man hat again so I'm sorry but but when they had the phenomenon of midnight movies those original midnight movies like Rocky Horror and Showgirls and The Room they sort of grew up organically because they were just they they the filmmakers didn't have a clue what they were making then came a wave of midnight movies that were manufactured to be midnight movies. And there always something slightly inauthentic about it. And I got that feeling here. It just, it just seemed like it was just trying too hard to be outrageous. And yeah, you've got pros like Nathan Lane and Megan Thee Stallion and Megan Mullally in it. And they really, they, they deliver, they give, they knew the assignment. Um, but I just, by the end of this, I was just as like, Oh, enough. So I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan. So you know, I, I can see certainly in the um, I think I may have had a different opinion if it was midnight in Toronto and I was going crazy for this. I mean, it was insane. There were inflatable penises being thrown in the audience, Tom. Like it was something else. <laughs> Just another Saturday night in Toronto, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I also saw Nyad uh, with Annette Benning and Jodie Foster, which begins streaming on Netflix this coming Friday. Yep. Uh, as we've discussed in uh, in the podcast and stuff, this is the first narrative film by the team who did Free Solo and The Rescue. And really, understandably, it's really strong on the training and the technical elements of what goes into marathon swimming. And the script is fine as far as it goes. But, you know, if you're if you're looking for something more than just the actual swim, I mean, there is a whole controversy that happened after the swim as to whether she actually was assisted, whether she actually did it. And to this day, it's not officially in the record books because of all of that was going on. If you're looking for that, that's another movie entirely. And these filmmakers were not interested in making it that. Um, What you do get when you uh, tune in, though, is a very good performance by Annette Bening, remarkably physical. 
and an excellent performance by Jodie Foster in support. I mean, the, the, these two actresses are the reason to see Naya. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to have a podcast review uh, that we already recorded, but that will be posted later on this week. Um, it's a movie that I think is imperfect, but where it soars, it really soars, especially the ending. Yeah. And I think Benning and Jodie are both really, really good in it, especially Jodie Foster. I really, really liked her performance in this movie a lot. Yeah. Okay, uh, for myself, I, I'm pretty positive. Like, I'm almost positive that I got nothing. Um, <laughs> yep, that is true. Um, I, I will say this. I did some rewatches at AFI Fest, um, so I'll, I'll save that for this section here. Um, I rewatched Memory and The Promised Land um, because we have some interviews for those two movies coming to the podcast pretty soon. Um, and I will be re-watching American Fiction and Maestro uh, later today. Uh, so those are two movies that I have already seen. Tom, you have not seen those yet, but uh, you will be pretty soon. I am counting the minutes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but otherwise, other than that, yeah, I mean, The Promised Land especially is a movie that I really, really, really enjoy. And it's unlike a lot of other international features in the race this year for best international feature film. It's Denmark's submission, mostly because though it's so much more mainstream in its approach to its storytelling compared to some of the more art housey affair that's out there, which I perfectly love. You know, I, I, lo- I like a lot of movies this year that are in the international race. Um, but there's something about the promised land that I just find to be more broad and appealing that really, really worked for me the first time I saw it. And then watching it a second time, I was just really happy at how well it held up. And then with memory, um, just got distribution recently from catch up entertainment, new distributor in town, and it's going to be having an award season campaign specifically for Peter Sarsgaard, um, for best supporting actor. So that was a movie that I thought had two really, really strong performances in it and is surprisingly the sweetest film that Michelle Franco has made to date. Um, like, I, I, I jokingly said they should put on the poster, it's the first Michelle Franco film that didn't make me want to kill myself when it was over. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> Cute. Um, but, Tom, I want to hear from you specifically. So let's dive into AFI because a lot of these movies that I'm mentioning are first-time watches for you. So why don't you take us through what your journey has been like over here so far? History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
Well, it, it started off with a very big red carpet uh, evening on Wednesday night uh, with the world premiere of Leave the World Behind, um, starring Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, and Mahershala Ali. Uh, it is, uh, it wasn't an auspicious start to the festival, at least for me. Uh, it's a film that uh, uses the disaster genre to make political commentary about the broken state of politics in America. Uh, it is, it's ambitious. I certainly would say would say that. Uh, and it has a very, very good Mahershala Ali performance. It just is in sort of an, it's in a no man's land in terms of what it is. It isn't um, genre enough to really work on that level. And some of the political stuff is very ham handed for at least I felt that way. Um, so uh, it's going to be streaming. It's going to be having a, a few weeks in theaters and then streaming later on uh, on Netflix. Here's my thing about that movie. That movie takes two hours and 20 minutes Yes, two hours and 20 minutes to build up to a reveal that the whole movie has been building towards because you don't know what the hell is going on. You don't know why people are behaving the way they're behaving. These strange events occur. You don't know why. So the whole movie is leaving you in this perpetual state of confusion, disorientation. And then when they reveal what it actually is, the reveal itself is interesting Mm. and is worth exploring. And there's some really good stuff there. I can see why Higher Ground wanted to be involved with this. That's, of course, the Obama's production company. But the best twist reveals in movies, and feel free, guys, to tell me if you agree or disagree here, are ones where we've been watching one movie the entire time, and then when the reveal happens, it recontextualizes everything that you saw before, and all of a sudden now it's a different movie. I'm, of course, thinking of movies like The Sixth Sense or The Usual Suspects, Fight Club, Something that, when it's revealed at the end, makes you rethink everything that you saw before. This reveal does not do that. And that was a huge letdown for me and part of the reason why I ultimately was extremely disappointed by this movie, given the talent involved especially. Yeah. It seems to want us to be shocked. And as you said, it's interesting, but it just – it doesn't doesn't really – make you think about what has gone before that differently. No, it, it comes too late in the movie, too, to actually deal with any of the ramifications, questions, and thoughts that it's bringing up. And, like, by that point, it's like, just get me out of here. I'm done. Like, I've already spent <laughs> almost two and a half hours here, and I'm, I'm over it. Enough already. But it was a, it was a big, splashy start, even without stars, uh, to AFI. And it's been – we have a number of world premieres um, this week that uh, uh, want to talk about a few of them. Um, Next next uh, big world premiere for me was the next night uh, for a new doc on uh, the career of Albert Brooks called Defending My, My Life. Uh, and it uh, it's the first film in seven years directed by Rob Reiner. So it's really nice to see him in the director's chair again. And he is also in the film. He is the interviewer. Uh, he and Brooks have a very long history together. Uh, they have uh, very similar backgrounds. They knew each other in high school. In both cases, their fathers were comedians and their mothers were singers. So they really do have had very parallel career paths and uh, and actually both went from um, comedy to film directing and both very successfully. Uh, it is in its own very way a very standard career doc. I mean, it doesn't really there's no great skeletons in the closet or scandals that are revealed in it. It's pretty much, and then this happened, and then this happened. So in that sense, it's not breaking anything. But unlike a lot of celebrity 
oriented docs. This one is genuinely funny. Uh, it's it's really I found myself laughing out loud at things that I mean, I can't remember a doc that I've laughed with so much as this one. No, there's some really good like punchy one liners and quips because it's also like kind of framed as this interview style, like almost like my dinner with Andre, uh, although it's like my dinner with Albert. They're in a restaurant, <laughs> Rob Reiner and Albert Brooks seated from across each other and they're just talking about their lives and the, the, <laughs> both of them are still very sharp. And both of them are still very funny in what they do. And so that lends itself well over to the doc. And then, of course, you use the clips from Albert Brooks's um, comedy routines, his appearances on the Jimmy Carson show and things of that nature. And, you know, it, it is funny to Tom's point. It's going to be on HBO. Um, and I think that it it's perfectly suited for that. It's a light, very easy, digestible watch. I don't think if you know everything there is to know about Albert Brooks that you're going to get any new information out of it but it is nice to see him in his uh, 70s looking back and reflecting on his life and his career yeah and the two men have an intimacy with one another that I think allowed Brooks to let his hair down a little bit Uh, and you do get an insight into the man if there is a downside to it it's you get a sense, at least I got a sense that there may be some darker demons in there somewhere that the film doesn't really explore. And that's okay. But there, they, they, there is a feeling that, you know, I just wanted a little bit more. Speaking of documentaries, though, celebrity docs, um, that'll be a good segue into another world premiere that I saw, which was Maxine's Baby, the Tyler Perry story. This is about the inspirational and meteoric rise of Tyler Perry in the industry. Um, I did not know. Like, I I had heard stories, but I did not know to what extent the troubles and hardship that he had to go through as a kid to get to where he is today. And it was pretty remarkable, I have to say. I was kind of shocked to see how he was able to transform his life and believe in in himself and push himself to do things that literally no one in this industry has done. And it was pretty moving and inspiring. And I walked away from it with a newfound respect for him. Um, Because quite frankly, you know, this is no surprise maybe to people out there, but the Medea movies are just not for me. I recognize what their appeal is for sure. But beyond that, he's more than just that character and more than just those movies. And he's done so much good for the industry overall that it's kind of amazing to see how much wealth, power, and influence he has achieved more than almost literally anybody in the industry and definitely unprecedented for a black man. Um, So really, really good stuff there. Um, I believe that's an Amazon documentary, so that'll be streaming on Prime at some point. But once again, very standard in its presentation. It's nothing incredible in terms of filmmaking. But if you don't know much about Tyler Perry's story the way I didn't know, I think you will be moved and find something of value in it. And then our final world premiere is uh, Freud's Last Session. Yes, which we have a trailer for. So Why don't we do this? Why don't we hold off on that one so that we can talk about the uh, trailer in just a minute here. But there's one other movie I do want to mention that I saw, Tom, that I – yeah, I don't think you were there for this one. Um, I finally saw Society of the Snow, the new J.A. Bayona film uh, that had its world premiere at Venice as a closing night film. This was the U.S. premiere. And I got to tell you guys, this is the real deal. 
Like, I don't know if it's all quiet on the Western Front real deal. Like, I don't know if it's going to get picture and director. But I'll tell you this. It should. Like, it should be a, an across-the-board contender. Like, this is a very well-directed movie from J.A. Bayona. I mean, it probably has, in my opinion, the most horrific, terrifying plane crash ever committed to film. Uh, the makeup work is astounding. The sound work is absolutely there are certain sequences in this where the sound work just completely blew me away. And then beyond that, too, it's like so well scored by Michael Giacchino. Um, and I saw a lot of people signaling him out uh, for praise for that. I definitely think he would be a contender this year for awards. Um, the ensemble cast is consists of mostly unknown actors, not a single false performance from anybody in this movie. It's um, two hours and 23 minutes long. It is very harrowing, grueling, brutal at times, but it's also some of the most beautiful filmmaking that Bayona has ever done. He um, told me I, I was you know lucky enough to have a, uh, a breakfast with him one-on-one, so I got like 40-something minutes with him, and we talked about this movie in great detail, and he told me that everything that he had done on The Impossible this was like him taking everything from that film and perfecting it with this one. And I actually feel that way. I think the human drama is all in the right place. There's a tremendous amount of respect for the victims and the survivors throughout. Um, it's never gratuitous in any way. And I know that for some people who know about this story, I can understand why certain elements might be kind of scaring you off. It's nowhere near as gruesome as you think it is, but in a almost like revenant style sort of way of when you're watching this movie, like you really feel that cold and you really, really feel like you are there in the elements with these people battling just everything that's being thrown at them. And when you come out the other side, I was so overwhelmed walking out of the theater, I was like practically shaking because it was just such a visceral experience that um, I, I can't, I like, I hope it gets more than just international feature because I do think it is a, a technical film that has a lot of merit to it. Um, we'll see how far it goes. I mean, right now it's scheduled to be released, I believe last week of December and then uh, Netflix early January. So it's going to have a pretty slow rollout over the next two months or so. Um, various screenings here and there. But, you know, I, I think like All Quiet on the Western Front last year, they're going to wait to see like what the shortlists look like. You know, the Oscar shortlist, BAFTA and things of that nature. And we'll see ultimately where it all ends up in the end. It might just be an international movie. Um, it might get no nominations. I don't know. But I, I walked away from it feeling like it definitely should get more than just international feature. Oh, yeah, I mean, around this time last year, we didn't even really know much about All Quiet on the Western Front otherwise, other than it was coming out. And then it ended I up did. Probably. <laughs> I, now I know. I know. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> and then it ended up being, you know, very likely the second place runner up for best picture. So there's still definitely room for things to shift around. All right, Tom, what do you got? Uh, well, there are one great thing about AFI Fest that there's a, a whole lot of international submissions here for the international feature Oscar from various countries. And it's been a wonderful chance to catch up on a lot of them. There have been a lot of smaller films that I've seen that I've very much liked. The Estonian uh, film Smoke Sauna Sisterhood, 
which is sort of a companion piece to women talking, a beautiful little film, and Pictures of Ghosts, which is a kind of a memory play of uh, uh, closed cinemas and churches in Brazil that uh, the uh, director has a lot of memories of. But there's some major contenders that showed here that in addition to The Promised Land. Uh, I did particularly like Bim Bender's Perfect Days, a beautiful, beautiful piece on the uh, extraordinary serenity that one man, a toilet cleaner in uh, Tokyo, has that he's accepted in life. It's a lovely, lovely piece with a terrific central performance. Um, the Peasants, a gorgeously animated, hand-drawn film from the filmmakers of Loving Vincent, which was nominated several years ago, and I suspect The Peasants will too. Yeah, I think so. A lot of people are sleeping on this as a potential nominee for yeah. best animated feature. I think it's definitely getting in. Yeah, for those who think it's a that Super Mario is a slam dunk, take a look at this. This is what, <laughs> this is what the also too one of the best uh, scores of the year as well. Absolutely beautiful. Um, one that surprised me that I didn't expect to like as much as I did, but I really liked was Totem from Mexico. Yes. A beautiful film about a family gathering together for the birthday of a family member who is ill. And it's all seen through the eyes of a seven-year-old girl. And the innocence with which she sees all of these family dynamics is just gorgeous. And if you've ever been to a family reunion and as a kid, if you have memories of that, um, you'll, you'll, have, you'll find a lot to recognize in, in that. And also, I also liked... Um, Il Capitano, the Italian entry, which is, in, in a way, it's a standard immigrant story. You know, it's about two young teen boys who decide to go from Senegal across Africa to try and get to Sicily. And we've seen some immigrant stories before. You know, they have their life savings and they meet swindlers and there's setbacks along the way. But the lead in this, a young kid named Sedu Sar, has the most, the brightest face on him, and he is his character is the most decent human being I've seen in a movie in 2023. He is a genuine hero in this, and so that you really root your heart's in your mouth that something's going to happen to him, and you really root him on as he um, makes that last stretch to try and get to Sicily. It's 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 a lovely film and, um, you know, could be a dark horse contender because uh, it's from the director of Gomorrah. Uh, that was a, a very big with the, uh, years ago. And um, this is probably his best film since then. So we've got some major contenders in the international race. Oh, but Tom, you're forgetting uh, Bastardin, The Promised Land. Uh, well, I, I said in addition to the Promised Land, you we <laughs> yes, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, the Promised Land is was just wonderful to see, and we were very very fortunate to have uh, the director and and Mads Mikkelsen there, who is exudes movie star quality. I, I was gonna say like I, it's so weird to see now uh, international film with Mads Mikkelsen. It, it, like at this level that he's at in his career now, um, I love that he keeps returning back to his home country, whether it's for Riders of Justice or Another Round or this. And it's like the guy's been in and they were like listing it off too. the amount of franchise movies he's been in at this point. Like he really is an international megastar now. Yeah. So to see him in a movie like this, it does make me wonder what is the commercial aspects for this movie beyond just the art house um, Oscar <laughs> fanatics crowd you know? because 
you know, his appeal is just so vast at this point. And this movie plays so freaking well. Like, all of the big screen epics out there, uh, the people who love movies like that, or even something like a Game of Thrones, you know, where it's just like very intriguing with an absolutely deplorable villain that you despise so much. You just want to see uh, Mads Mikkelsen succeed against him. And I I, I mean, dude, I, I can't praise this movie enough, like, because I think it stands out very, very greatly from a lot of the other contenders that I've seen this year, where it just has a, a, a level of commercial appeal that, you know, maybe some people will scoff at it and say that it's melodramatic and emotionally manipulative. I don't know, but damn, when you listen to, like, the crowd yesterday, Tom, like, you oh can't deny that this movie just works for an audience. <laughs> it, it absolutely does. It's interesting. The director, uh, Nicolas Arcel, said that when it shows in Denmark, the big moment that is uh, the, the climax of the film uh, gets shocked silence. But in America, whenever it plays, it's like, yeah, get him. And that's what happened at, at Serene AFI Fest yesterday. We were screaming for blood. <laughs> <laughs> and and if you are a fan of Writers of Justice, which I was, uh, the director and writer of that film, Anders Thomas Jensen, has, he and Arcel co-wrote this. So the, the screenplay is just really, really solid as well. And uh, before we, we leave, I just wanted to um, take one more uh, thing that I see that I would highly recommend. I did get to see the bike riders. Oh, yes. Which uh, as of today, still, we don't know when the rest of the world is unfortunately going to be able to see this. <laughs> we don't. Uh, I thought it was absolutely terrific. Uh, it's one of my favorite Jeff Nichols films. Uh, and, uh, you know, I am kind of of a minority opinion. I, I think the move away from December is probably a good thing for it. I think so, too. Because it's not really an awards player, but I think there's the chance that in a less competitive environment, perhaps the spring, this can really find an audience because it really it really explores a certain kind of subculture of motorcycle clubs in the, in the late 60s, early 70s that was very much of its time. And it really gets that the 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 brotherhood and sisterhood clubs and it features a remarkable cast uh, Austin Butler smolders as one would hope and in, in a way and the Chicago accents of Tom Hardy and particularly Jodie Comer who's fabulous in it I was gonna say how Sarah's girlfriend in this movie oh my god <laughs> she is Sarah you will not believe it. It's so it, she is terrific in it. I, I jokingly said after I saw it at Tell You Right, I was like, "This movie has something for everyone." <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's like because yeah, like Tom Hardy's got like such a weird, alluring appeal to him in this movie that yes. is something that like only he can pull off with his screen presence. Austin Butler is a goddamn movie star. Oh man, like James Dean level goddamn movie star. Seriously. You cannot take your eyes off of him when he's on there. And he doesn't have a lot. This is not like an Elvis kind of performance. It's it's it's, it's kind of a low key. But whenever he's on screen, you cannot look away. And Jodie Comer owns the entire movie, in my opinion. Yeah, she's she really is the heart and soul of it. And is it's it's we keep coming back to her. And every time she reappeared on screen, I was just so happy. 
So uh, yeah, keep an eye out for that whenever the heck they uh, 20th Studios gets it out. So uh, hopefully in the spring and hopefully they can give it the, the launch that it deserves. Also, Tom, did you see Memory last night? I did indeed. What'd you think? It's a very, it's difficult because uh, it's kind of unsettling in that it's about about two very broken people who are beginning to try and form a relationship. And we also often see films about one broken person and there's a savior in the relationship who tries to bring them back. And here are two broken people, both of whom who need help. And you're, you kind of worry, you, you want them to have happiness, but are there dysfunctions going to work against each other? And the fact that you have them in the hands of uh, actors like Peter Sarsgaard and Jessica Chastain, they know exactly what they're doing. It's very unsentimental. Uh, yet at the same time, as you had said um, with Franco, it's like unexpected sweetness um, that uh, that is there. It's a it's a really strong um, examination of it's not clinical. It's a very much a. a, a there's a romance there, but you really do feel for these two characters. And um, I hope it gets gets out there with this new distri- distribution company. I'm very glad it has distribution. Yeah, it's a movie that where I was constantly always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah. And I was wondering if it was ever going to take a turn that would shock and horrify me or just make me very, very upset. <laughs> And there's one particular scene that's really, really devastating where Jessica Chastain like just bears her soul. And uh, I think I think this is actually one of her best performances. There's no tricks or theatrics. It's an extremely grounded, very honest and raw performance from her. That is something that I don't feel I've seen from her in quite a while, uh, maybe since Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah, there's no vanity here. And Peter, and Peter, I think, is like this is such a masterclass in subtlety as well, because he, too, does not overplay this performance at all. And so when he does have moments where like there's one particular moment where he does kind of emotionally crack a little bit, but it's also just so um, authentic and real in a way that just uh, like it never it never screamed. Um, over dramatic or like, oh, this is the Oscar scene or anything like that, you know? Like, it was a real honest movie um, about, like you said, two people who are, you know, people might watch this movie and think that they shouldn't be together for obvious reasons, given what they're both going through. Um, but yeah, I don't want to reveal too much more about it. But um, even on a second viewing, I was pretty unexpectedly moved by it. Yeah, it, it really is very special. Okay, uh, well, tonight uh, I've got American Fiction and Maestro for a second time uh, this evening, so that's what I'm doing. What are, you, what are you doing, Tom? And I will see you for both there as well. Oh, cool. All right. So that'll conclude AFI Fest then for us. And then after that, I mean, we're pretty much done with the major film festivals for the fall. Um, there are some regionals that still take place, but the big ones, that's pretty much it. We're uh, all done. And then... It's off to November and December as far as the precursors go, which we're going to segue. I know that we're going to revisit AFI in just a minute here uh, with the polls and with the trailer, but I do want to segue over to the Gotham Awards because we did get the full list of nominations for that for this year, representing film and television. This was the first year where they lifted the budget cap, so now we didn't have to worry about a bunch of indie films being nominated because now they could nominate Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon and Barbie. Well, guess what, people? 
<laughs> Most of the studios decided to either not submit these movies, or in the case of Barbie, there was only one nomination in total. The Gotham Awards still looked like the Gotham Awards, which shocked me a little bit. But maybe I shouldn't have been shocked, considering that, um, as we've talked about in the past, each of these categories has a nominating committee. And so a lot of times you will get... Uh, some discrepancies and not so much uniformity in terms of the nominations. Like something will be nominated for picture, but maybe nothing else. Um, and maybe something will be nominated for all other categories except best picture, you know? So it's very random and chaotic, uh, especially when I was going down the list of the nominations. I felt like I was getting whiplash as I was continuing to read them more and more. Um, but I do think that at the end of the day, especially every, after everything we talked about on last week's episode, um, I'm very glad that the Gothams still managed to retain their identity for the most part through these nominations. Yeah, the uh, I was where I was very worried that it was going to be just a, another rubber stamp and they would lose their identity. I mean, they really have a reason for being. They really have, and the fact that they nominated some people we had worried would be forgotten or ignored. Um, just, just when I saw these nominations, my heart was filled for some some of these folks who may not get academy recognition but i'm so happy to see that uh, at least one awards body um thought their work was uh, merited yeah let's look at outstanding supporting performance first we have julia pinoche in the taste of things penelope cruz and ferrari jamie fox they clone tyrone claire foy all of us strangers ryan gosling for barbie glenn howerton for blackberry sandra huller the zone of interest Rachel McAdams, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, Charles Melton for May, December, and Divine Joy Randall for The Holdovers. Great lineup. Yeah. I'm especially happy for Glenn Howerton for Blackberry. I, I know that IFC is continuing to push him for that film, and that's a very fun performance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I recently rewatched that movie, and I've loved his work on It's Always Sunny for a while, and I've always thought he's probably the best actor on that show. So getting him to getting to see him flex those muscles in a different way is really great. I think he's so funny in that movie, but also kind of terrifying. It's an amazing performance. Uh, Jamie Foxx showing up here for Vay Clone Tyrone. Great mention. If you guys have not seen that movie, that's like one of the most fun Jamie Foxx performances of his entire career. <laughs> I thought that was really good. I love seeing Rachel McAdams here for All You Vera God. It's me, Margaret. Yeah, it's, it's such a beautiful performance. And I, I, I particularly like the fact that this is not filled with Oscar Shore shots. Yes. I mean, you do have Penelope Cruz here for Ferrari. You do have Devon Joy Randolph for the holdovers. But they deserve to be here. Um, yeah. You got Ryan Gosling for Barbie, which, you know, I get it. And a lot of people have been saying that if they were willing to go out of their way to – put Gosling in for Barbie, and that was the only nomination Barbie received, remember. Um, Killers and Oppenheimer were not submitted for Gotham consideration. But it, it just goes to show you that there is real love and real support for this performance if they were willing to overlook the popularity of that movie and throw him in here along with um, a lot of people who, you know, are I think going to struggle to get into the supporting uh categories but some of them here getting the boost that they got like Claire Foy for all the strangers is one where I'm keeping a close eye on to see if that goes anywhere throughout the season it's interesting that they nominated Sandra Huller for the zone of interest and not anatomy of a fall yeah that's a case where like I said earlier different committees for the different categories and uh mm. you know it, it's not like the two groups talk to each other so you know it's like it, I don't know 
I don't know like what the mentality is sometimes. Maybe also too, it's like sometimes some people, and I th- I get this sense with the Gotham Awards where a lot of people will think, okay, well this performance is rightfully going to get recognized throughout the season elsewhere. Like let's go out of our way to find a performance, a gem, and something that no one's talking about instead. And Sandra Huller is one of those people where I do expect her to be a constant throughout this entire award season, you know? Yeah, the thing about the Gothams is that while they sometimes go semi-far afield of for the nominees, less so this year because of the different rules, the winners sometimes kind of tend to look like what – Oscar may go for like just last year, Kahi Kwan won for everything everywhere all once. You know, he won literally almost everything last year, so that's not too surprising. So it makes me wonder if maybe Ryan Gosling could win this. I mean, I think it's definitely a possibility for sure. Now when now with ten nominees, both men and women in the category two, it's really, really tough, more so than ever, to predict these categories. Um, but going over to lead performance, we have Anjanu Ellis Taylor for Origin, Lily Gladstone for the Unknown Country. Greta Lee for Past Lives, Fran Rogakowski for Passages, Babe Tita Sajo for Our Father the Devil, Andrew Scott for All of Us Strangers, Kaylee Spaney for Priscilla, Tiana Taylor, A Thousand and One, Michelle Williams for Showing Up, and Jeffrey Wright for American Fiction. Um, Particularly happy for Tiana Taylor, who is somebody that I want to see continue to build more steam in the lead actress conversation. Um, Lily Gladstone getting in here. Uh, that was interesting because, you know, like I said earlier, Killers was not submitted. But I don't know how, but she'll she'll be there. And well, I mean, she may not be there. Be there. I don't know if that film has an agreement or not with SAG. But um, you know, it's one of those things though where it's like, okay, we can't nominate her for Killers, but like, let's continue to like. Yeah, make her a presence, and and that nomination felt like a Gotham nomination. Absolutely, and I, I was very happy to see Andrew Scott here, and and particularly uh, Franz Rogowski for Passages. Yes, uh, that's the nerviest performance of the year, and I'm glad they recognized the sluttiest, most chaotic performance of 2023. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget watching yeah. that on Sunday. I said like 10 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, too, shout out to Anjanu Ellis Taylor for Origin. Yeah. That's a that's a much needed uh, start for her campaign. Yes. How are you feeling about Kaylee Spaney at this point for Priscilla? Uh, I have her in my ten. Obviously, I mean that Venice win helps her out immensely, but also not necessarily. <laughs> you know, the festival acting awards don't always equate to Oscars. It does help that this is a movie that was already circling Oscar from a director who they've proven to like in the past. It's mm-hmm. been a while, but you know, she does have an Oscar. So I think this category is stuffed to the brim as it is almost every year. So it might require some movements this season, but it definitely could happen. And Jeffrey Wright getting in here as well. This is like another case where it's like, well, they were willing to go out of their way for Jeffrey Wright. They were willing to go out of their way for American fiction. And I, I'm not saying I did this begrudgingly. I say this, that like, it just feels to me like we are on a train, like a very, very slowly building, but a large train nonetheless for this movie where it's picking up audience awards at all these film festivals. And I just feel that if you guys don't have this, like in your best picture nominations at this point, um, you probably should start thinking about it going there and Jeffrey Wright getting into actor as well. I mean, it's a vehicle for him that 
could bring him his first nomination. He's worked with literally everybody in the industry. He's so well respected. Never been nominated before. And, you know, when, when you have your movie that's winning all of these audience uh, prizes at these festivals and it's just such a crowd pleaser, it <sighs> – and I also think, too, that even on its worst day, I still think the screenplay gets in, so it has that going for it as well. Yeah, I, I think I think these three nominations, picture, actor, and screenplay, are absolutely happening for it at this point. We've seen trains like this before, and it usually ends well. Yeah. Speaking of screenplay, uh, we have All of Us Strangers, Anatomy of a Fall, May, December, RMN, and The Zone of Interest. Um, the Zone of Interest one is interesting. I, I wonder if... Um, I mean, I don't know, but like, you know, Glazer didn't show up in the director category, but he, you know, did manage to show up here. Um, the RMN mention is awesome. I love that. Yeah. That's yeah. a very astute nomination. I'm really happy. Very surprising, though. No past lives. Yeah. 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 It kind of feels like past lives would be the one that would run the gamut here, like top to bottom. Mm-hmm. And it did well, obviously, but, you know, yeah. there's room for it to do a little better. Yeah, for Breakthrough Director, uh, Past Lives, Celine Song is nominated here, along with Raven Jackson for All Dirt Roads, Taste of Salt, uh, Georgia Oakley for Blue Jean, Michelle Garza Cavera for Hueza, and A.V. Rockwell for 1001. All very solid nominations. You know, there's a lot of really good directorial debuts this year, like Boy. a lot, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love Blue Jean and Sarah the Bone Woman. Those two are Probably two of my favorite films of the year, so I definitely recommend checking them out. Yep, and and I saw Raven Jackson's film uh, All Dirt Roads, Taste of Salt last night, and uh, she she's a poet. It's a very different style of directing, but she has enormous talent, and I'm really anxious to see what her next project's going to be because this was really a lovely poem, uh, a visual poem, and it's uh, it's really one of one of the strikingly beautiful films of the year. Best International Feature was definitely uh, interesting because you have All of Us Strangers, Anatomy of a Fall, Poor Things, Totem, and The Zone of Interest. And you might look at it and think to yourself, wait, what's international about this necessarily? (laughs) Um, But, you know, Anatomy of a Fall is in multiple languages, Zone of Interest, German film, Totem is the one inclusion here where I'm like, okay, that is awesome. It feels um, like it's the little David versus the many Goliaths in this category, which I uh, particularly love for it because it is such a small movie. Um, but as Tom was saying earlier, it's really, really well done. Um, this was the only nomination for Poor Things, which uh, was a little surprising to me. But it reminded me a little bit of Banshees getting in here last year, where that also didn't receive any additional nominations. Um, but also, to all of the strangers, it's... Uh, Something to point out here about All the Strangers, it did not get into Best Feature, but it literally led the nominations at the Gotham Awards and did very, very well overall. This this is a sleeper Best Picture nominee, I think. I can see people being very passionate about it and, and for some, getting its number one ranking, which is what you need to get into the 10. Now, you better believe the category that I had my eye on the most was Best Documentary Feature. <laughs> um, because I've been obsessing over this category as of late. Um, we have 20 Days in Mariupol, Against the Tide, Apollonia, Apollonia, Four Daughters, and Our Body. I can tell you all right now with some level of certainty, other than 20 Days in Mariupol, something else in this category is going to be nominated at the Oscars. One of the other four. And I don't know which way to lean just yet, but it's... 
people got to understand that the documentary branch is extremely international and they tend to go for movies that have a certain level of importance or some level of artistic quality to how they are made. And so 20 Days of Mario Paul, I think, is going to show up literally everywhere throughout the entire season. But some of these other ones here, like I, I don't know which ones yet, but I could see a world where one, two of them uh, make it into the final documentary feature lineup. And it's wild to me, too, because these are four uh, documentaries that I don't see many people talking about like at all. Yeah. Um, I could I can give you a vote of confidence on Against the Tide, a beautiful Indian film about two two fishermen friends who diver, whose paths diverge into their approach for fishing. Uh, it has that kind of uh, ecological weight to it, uh, and it's a beautiful uh, story of friendship too. I could see it being that one sneaky fifth nominee. Yeah, I keep trying to tell everybody like these celebrity docs and. A lot of these more mainstream titles that you saw nominated like at the Critics' Choice Awards, they're not all going to get in there. Not with this branch. So you got to think outside the box, and this is a good place to look. This and the um, International Documentary Association, when they release their nominees, that's going to be another list to look at, too, um, to find that that one title that uh, could kind of come out of nowhere. I'm especially keeping an eye on Apollonia, Apollonia which uh, premiered, I think, at Tribeca earlier this year. That's another one I think could also like sneak in there. So anyway, that race is, as always, keeping us on our toes. <laughs> yeah, the key with this race, and I'm sure people are looking to these five films as like, oh, maybe this is these could be on the radar, is that you never know what's going to do well in that race until they announce the nominees. It is just always the hardest category. <laughs> yeah, even when they announce the short list, they always throw us curveballs because something inevitably always misses the short list. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then best feature, we have Passages, Past Lives, Reality, Showing Up, and 1001. 1001 had a really good day, too, actually, with its nominations. Um, that Reality nomination, I don't understand it. I like it perfectly fine. It was good, but for it to not be nominated anywhere and to be taking up a slot here, I'm not. I'm not too enthusiastic about that mention. No. There's always some random nominees here in Best Feature. The Independent Spirits do a similar thing where it's like usually three or four movies you heard about and expect and then something really unexpected or something you maybe have not even heard of. Like last year they nominated The Cathedral and Dos Estaciones, which I saw at Sundance, but was I was not having it on my radar for any sort of Best Feature prize. So what do we think here? We think uh, Past Lives or 1001 are going to do well to Gotham's. Or Passages. I think it's... I think all three of those are definite contenders. I'd actually put Passages above 1001, personally. Mm. See, I could see Tiana Taylor winning the lead prize and uh, 1001 winning the top prize. Like, I could see that happening. But similar to, you know, Past Lives with uh, Greta Lee, I could, you know, see um, her winning, too, and then the film also winning Best Feature. So Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've I've been maybe because I saw it almost a year ago as an answer at this point, but I've been having a feeling about past lives this entire award season. And like we said, there was definitely room for it here at the Gothams to do a little better, but it did well enough that I'm not feeling, I'm still feeling semi-competent in it. And also too, past lives doing well here. Um, if it were to win, that would be the boost that I think a lot of people feel it needs right now, because I've talked to a lot of people about where they feel past lives currently stands in the awards race. And People think it's starting to fail uh, and fall off the lists a bit. So it is, 
getting a little tricky when you have so many of these other big contenders coming in and kind of forcibly pushing it out. So uh, with that said, the event for the winners will take place on Monday, 20, um, Monday, November 27th. Maestro will receive the Cultural Icon and Creator Tribute Award. Rustin will receive the Icon and Creator Tribute for Social Justice. And Air will receive a Visionary Icon and Creator Tribute Award as well. So all three of those films will also be represented to some degree or another at the Gotham Awards. Whether or not the SAG after strike will lift by then to allow for there to be appearances from someone like Ben Affleck or Bradley Cooper remains to be seen. It's something that... Um, you know, the negotiations over the last couple of days and the updates that we've been receiving have been a bit encouraging, to say the least. Um, you know, it could be any day now. Could happen today. Yep. I would love it if it happened today before the Maestro premiere this evening, Tom. This way Bradley can uh, <laughs> hop in an Uber and get over here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm rooting. Yeah, but we'll see. In any event, though, it's always great to see independent films get recognized. And I'm really, really happy that the Gotham Awards did not do anything shameful or embarrassing yeah they're usually even with these different expanded rules which i was a little bit nervous about they're usually one of the more sound nominating bodies there's not usually much silliness going on with them i agree yeah they're not the globes (laughs) and it's just a great way to like i said earlier to just give some of these smaller films a bit of a boost to contend with some of the larger titles that are going to be getting in by default throughout the rest of the season so It's nice to have a mixture of both big films and small films in your award season, always. Okay, um, and now we're going to do a bit of a uh, hard pivot back to AFI again. Um, We're going to talk about the trailer for Freud's Last Session. Sony Pictures Classics released this a few days before its world premiere. It's directed by Matt Brown. It stars Anthony Hopkins and Matthew Good. It had its world premiere the other day. But it will be coming to theaters in limited release on December 22nd from Sony Pictures Classics. Let's take a look at the trailer. Let's give some thoughts. Professor Lewis? Yes. Anna Freud. Ah. Nice to meet you. And you. Good luck. Dr. Freud. Sit, please. Not there. That's the transformation couch. You be careful. <laughs> Why would you come here to see me if you disagree so passionately with my views? You've insisted all your lives that the very concept of God is ludicrous. Yes. Clash between God and Satan. Ah, but I did not say whose side I was on. I consider what people tell me far less interesting than what they choose not to tell me. Have you frightened off your professor yet? (laughs) Not yet. Soon, perhaps. Okay, Cody and Sarah, given that you guys have not seen the film yet, what did you guys think of this trailer? It looks almost exactly like I would think a trailer for a movie called Freud's Last Session would look. You know, Anthony Hopkins, I'm loving what his latter career is looking like. It's kind of the ideal career for a veteran actor. Um, And he's been going strong for years now. So to see him still get headlining leading roles in decently big movies like this is great to see. I'm not too... This isn't having me, this isn't making me want to rush out to buy a ticket per se. (laughs) Um, I think it's definitely aiming for a very specific audience, and I don't know if that includes me, but I think there definitely is a world out there where a bunch of people are going to want to see two British guys arguing. I mean, that's like been the bedrock of a lot of great movies. Yeah, it's, um, it didn't really do much for me, but I do like that it seems to, at least from the trailer, it seems that it's going to lean into some like, fantasy elements going back to like c.s lewis's work 
Um, and didn't Anthony Hopkins play C.S. Lewis at one point? So it's cool that he's kind of playing opposite a role that he once played. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Right, in Shadowlands. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems quite standard. I, I don't know. <laughs> like, Cody, I don't think I'm going to rush out and buy a ticket. <laughs> well, Tom, was that the case for you? Did you think it was standard? Well, you know, you, you have to know going in, this is based on a two-actor play in it. You know, it's one set, two actors going at it, and which is incredibly uncinematic. So I can understand the desire to expand it a bit. Uh, there are, it, it is, but the, the heart of it is this dialogue between uh, Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis that probably didn't happen, but it's one of those speculative things. What if? And it happens um, just a few days before Hitler invades Poland uh, in World War II. So there's a the tension level is very high. Uh, when these two actors go, I mean, Matthew Good, I know all the attention is going, you know, people think Anthony Hopkins. Yes. Matthew Good holds his own and then some. Uh, his actually he has the more complicated uh, character, I think, in uh, C.S. Lewis. He has suffers some PTSD. He is in a unusual relationship uh, that the film goes into. And um, it is, in one sense, it's it's a it's a debate of ideas, but it's also an acting duel. So on that level, I enjoyed it. The problem is that the the uh, writer of the play, Mark Saint Germain, and the director, uh, Matthew uh, Brown, have expanded it. And so that characters who are mentioned in the play now have their own sub story. And some of those are very lengthy. And it's like, come on, let's get back to the, the two guys. Yeah. Uh, and and it gets just to be very, very impatient and very choppy so that the flow of the drama in Freud's office gets dissipated by these subplots that uh, um, become more distractions than anything else. And I think it's ultimately to the detriment of the film. The strength of the film are the performances, the two lead performances, but the movie that surrounds them is working against them. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, you know, it's worth watching just for the two actors. Um, but unfortunately, the movie, in its attempts to be cinematic, actually turned out to be uncinematic for me. Um, it just came across as forced and very conventional. And I did not find as much enjoyment out of anything to, uh, that was not taking place in that single room between those two actors. I think both Good and Hopkins are pretty excellent here. Especially Hopkins, um, there is an element of confronting death in his performance that is something that Hopkins has been revisiting multiple times. It feels like recently in a lot of roles, um, and I, I it, it like breaks me every single time. Um, but yeah, I agree with what Tom said. Matthew Good, underrated actor. I don't, I, I just don't feel like anybody knows like how talented he actually really is, uh, and he's always been very consistent. Uh, but he never often gets showcase roles to show people what he can do. And so getting a glimpse of that here is, I think, definitely a treat for sure. It's not a great movie. Um, it's not a terrible movie either, in my opinion. It's it's something where when I watched the trailer before watching it, I actually was very excited because I was like, oh, this looks a lot better than I thought it was going to be in my mind. But I realized the reason why I felt that way was because I was so captivated by Hopkins and good in the trailer and the movie turns out to be the exact same way 
So if you like those two performers and you want to see them just verbal spar, then I think you'll get something out of it. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go over the polls because for last week's poll, we asked everyone which films are they most looking forward to seeing from the 2023 AFI Film Festival. So in all the movies that we have discussed here, Sarah, Cody, what movies that we've mentioned are you looking forward to seeing? So Society of the Snow has really jumped up there in my estimation. And for some reason, I didn't know the plot of the movie. I didn't know it was about this specific flight, which I find fascinating. So I'm definitely more interested in it than I was before. Um, This description of a really harrowing plane crash has me a little worried as somebody who isn't any more scared of flying, but once definitely was. (laughs) So I'm a little bit – Let me put it to you this way, Cody. Let me put it to you this way. Where most filmmakers, when they film plane crashes upon impact, they cut to black. Jay Bayona does not cut to black. Got it. Okay. That actually, I think I can handle that. Um, But I'm not too surprised to hear that because what he did with The Impossible is also terrifying. You know, that's a movie that gets talked about more for the inspiring elements of it or just about Naomi Watts' performance. But the initial tsunami sequence is horrifying. Like he really knows scale and how to just – really rack it up the tension. So I'm really curious to see this movie, especially if it's going to be some sort of contender. But yeah, everything I've heard about it has me really interested. Yeah, it played so freaking well here. They even brought out two of the survivors from the crash. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the emotion that was running through the crowd that in the room, it also had on record for me, out of all the movies I've seen so far this year on the Fall Film Festival circuit, including Can, might I add, uh, this had the longest sustained applause through its credits out of any movie I've seen this year. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one and hoping I can get to see it in a theater rather than just on my TV. Yes, I, I think that that's uh, paramount. <laughs> like, like, like that, that should be required, I think, for this one. So fingers crossed for you on that. Sarah, what about you? Yeah, since your review of Society of the Snowmat, that's definitely like way up on my list. It sounds harrowing and i can't wait to watch it also i mean i haven't seen um all of us strangers yet so that's definitely still high on my list and of course bike riders because yeah my girlfriend jody comer (laughs) (laughs) all right tom what about you what have you like not seen well, Society of the Snow is now number one on that list that I uh, that I was so so uh, like uh, like both Cody and Sarah. That's that's gonna I'm gonna try and see it in the theater as as well. And uh, there's some, some more international ones I uh, do want to get be able to get to along the way. But I'm most looking forward to today and American Fiction and Maestro. Yeah, I can't wait for you to watch Maestro. I think that's gonna be a really really special screening later. And American Fiction, we're, we're going to laugh our asses off. It's going to be fun. <laughs> All right. Let's see what the MVP film community voted for here. Coming in at number 10, The Promised Land. Great. I love that it started to gain momentum and people are starting to take notice of it. That's really cool. Uh, oh, number nine. Speaking of which, About Dry Grasses. Oh, our listeners are so smart. Yeah. Well, they've heard me like rave about this movie since can. So, <laughs> uh, number eight is Society of the Snow. I think that's just going to climb up once people really start to get their eyes on it. I think so too. And the buzz, get, buzz gets yeah. out. Uh, number seven, Perfect Days. Yes, very worth it. 
Number six. Speaking of Warfit, I love this movie. The Taste of Things. Oh. I'm very interested to see this, especially since it's been chosen as the French submission. I mean, I've, it sounds pretty great. It's delicious. Oh. <laughs> Sarah, isn't it just like the most fulfilling, warm blanket of a movie? Yes. And I saw it on like an IMAX screen. Oh. And... The food was massive. Thank God I had popcorn because I would have been starving. Everything looks so good. Juliette Binoche is so good. Love it. That's also another thing, too. Required for this screening, if you see the taste of things, you must have food. Because I tell you right now, if you don't, you're going to be running to get food as soon as the movie's over. (laughs) It's going to make you so hungry. (laughs) Number five. Oh, my God. I love that it's all international titles so far. Number five is Evil Does Not Exist. Yeah. Which still has the most confounding ending to anything I've seen this year. I still can't wrap my head around it. I don't know what the hell he was doing with that ending, but I love it. (laughs) Number four, the bike riders. Good. Number three, American fiction. The train's moving. Yeah, that's really going to be the came-out-of-nowhere movie of the season, isn't it? It is. I think it is. I mean, you don't win the TIFF Audience Award over the holdovers for nothing. Right. Number two, All of Us Strangers. Oh, I thought that'd be number one, so now I'm I'm curious. (laughs) I think the reason why this one is number one is because that second trailer just blew everybody away. Number one is Maestro. Yeah. that's It was an amazing trailer, and I was already pretty sold in this movie. But that had me just, just you know, I cannot wait to see that now. I agree. I, I was, I, I wasn't even gonna watch it again here, to be honest with you. Not because I don't like it or nothing. I, I was gonna just try to watch something that I hadn't seen before. But when I saw that second trailer, I was like, shit, I got, I gotta go again. <laughs> like, and it does the ideal thing that trailers do, which is not give too much away. It's really focused on mood and images mm-hmm. rather than selling you specific plot beats, which is not similar from what. The Stars Born trailers looked like, and those were again, those were also some of the best trailers I'd seen in a while. Yeah, I agree. All right, Cody, this is your time, man. For this week's poll, we are asking everyone which is your favorite horror movie from 2023 so far. Happy Halloween to everyone that's listening right now, even though we're a few days before. Uh, people are dressing up. I'm already starting to see uh, some really inspiring costumes on the uh, social media timelines. And people are watching a lot of horror movies, doing a lot of catch-up as well. But, Cody, I want to come to you first because you're a horror movie expert over here. What are some of your favorites from this year? And also, too, do you have like any like hidden gems that people can check out? So the interesting thing is I was looking at my own personal list of horror movies I've seen. And granted, there are still some I need to see. Um, I've seen most of the big releases and most notable, well-received ones. But it's a it's a decently top-heavy list. And then there's a lot of stuff down the bottom of my year list so far that is just no good. I'm looking at things like the Children of the Corn remake and Last Voyage of the Demeter, or The Pope's Exorcist. Just these movies that kind of just feel like... Thing like, there's always been bad horror movies, but I think lately the way that they've proven to be steady box office uh, guarantees means that we're pumping out more and more mediocre horror movies than we have in a while, which is disappointing. But you know, unfortunately, I'm gonna see them because that's how my <laughs> my broken brain works. That being said, uh, some of the best ones I've seen this year so far. Obviously, there's been big releases like Scream Six and Saw X, just really impressive films from franchises that have been around for a while that are still making an impact later in their, you know, 
20 plus year run at this point, which is really impressive. Um, I was a fan of Skinamarink. I know that is a bit divisive. I saw it in a, a dark, quiet theater packed to the gills with people who had heard all this buzz online. And that's kind of the ideal way to watch it. I was nervous about watching it on Shudder, which it is a Shudder film, because I can totally see, even somebody who's semi-disciplined about this like me, their eyes just drifting off the screen towards their phone or to conversation with whoever they're watching it with, because it's not a very constantly engaging film. But for it to work, you have to be locked into it. So I think it totally works. I found it very scary, but I understand people who did not have that feeling. In terms of hidden gems, I saw one movie at Sundance that I really thought was a good time called Birth Rebirth. And the plot maybe does not sound like it would be <laughs> something you describe as a good time. It starts with a child dying, basically. And it is a kind of strange Frankenstein meets the odd couple movie. It's very interesting and funny and dark with some really impressive makeup. I had a really great time with that one. And I'm glad to see that people are seeing it now and having a similarly uh, – warm reception what about you sarah any horror movies this year um yeah so my top i think if i'm picking five um would be who's sarah the bone woman um i also really liked cobweb and the new scream it feels like the new scream came out like 50 years ago but it came out in march i think and i really did like that one Talk to me, of course. I saw it back at Sundance, and I'm glad that it did so well at the box office. And When Evil Lurks, I think, is one of my favorite of the year. It just came out on Shutter on Friday. Definitely check that one out. Yeah, When Evil Lurks is the one that I am missing at this point, but I have a feeling that's going to be right up my alley. Mm-hmm. It's very dark and takes you down you know, you don't really know what you're going to get into when you're watching it. I love that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I would say I was really taken by Talk to Me. I really, really enjoyed that quite a bit. I also was a big fan of the new uh, Scream movie at times. I had a blast watching that one. Evil, um, Evil Dead Rise was a lot of fun. Some really, really great makeup work in that movie, too. Um I haven't seen The Boogeyman yet, um, but I'm going to catch that at some point, as mentioned earlier. Uh, Tom, what about you, though? Any horror movies from this year really stand out to you? I am so far behind in my horror movies. <laughs> I'm so Tony. I know I've been doing all this festival stuff. Oh, 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 and I, I also forgot. I got to mention this. I have to put some respect to her name and mention Megan. Otherwise, you know, she'll come for me. Okay. Mm. <laughs> Megan was a hoot. That was like one of the best theater experiences I've had this year, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I'm thinking it's back in all the way back in January and I still think about it. Uh, and, and, uh, like you, Sarah, I'm a huge fan of talk to me. Uh, I think that it's lean and it's mean and it's, it's really wonderful that I, I had sort of put off Halloween movies until this, this week when I get back from AFI, but I, you know, it's, it's funny, Cody, I've never seen skin, uh, uh, skin, I can't even say it's skin and And, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And and I've, uh, I'm going to be seeing – I definitely want to see When Evil Lurks. And um, I realize The Boogeyman is streaming, so maybe I can do three this week. I hope so. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, well, Tom, I'll just say this. Good luck with Skidamarink. Uh, it wasn't for me. <laughs> I'm going to hide my phone and just put all the lights out. Perfect. That's the only way to watch it, truly. Okay. Thanks, Cody. Okay. I can't really bend the rules this much. Let me just survey here. Let me ask. Do you guys think Bo is Afraid is a horror movie? 
I don't. Okay. And I went into it looking, I went into it with that question because obviously his last two movies were definitely horror movies, really scary ones specifically. I do not think the intention of the film is to scare. I think it is more tense, but in a dark comedic kind of way. And I don't consider, I consider horror films based on their intention rather than, you know, necessarily uh, energy or previous directors of work. And I don't think this is trying to scare the audience. So then the only other one on the list then that may be questionable that I want to shout out for people, because I just think it's a little underseen, is uh, Pablo Lorraine's El Conde. Yeah, I got to check that out. Which features vampires and, you know, I mean, like, I, I think it fits the definition of horror. It's just not, to your point, Cody, it's not like trying to scare you horror. No. I think anything with vampires. That's not like what we do in the shadows is horror. And even that is like a horror comedy. Yeah. So I, I, you know, based on the themes and the, the subject matter, I would, I would probably consider that horror. It's kind of a political satire with horror elements to it. Yeah. Well, MVP film community, head on over to the polls page, cast a vote. Let us know. You can choose up to five films and tell us what your favorite horror movie from 2023 is so far. I will say Sarah, after that Gotham award nomination and you mentioning it here too, I want to now check out who Sarah yeah, it's it's truly excellent. I f- I'm not quite sure where you can stream it. Maybe on Shutter. Mm. I forget. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm definitely going to add that one to the list too. So hopefully, you know, this week during Halloween, I'll catch up with that. The Boogeyman and When Evil Lurks. That's those are the three on my list. Oh, also too. You know what? Shout out to Brendan Cronenberg for Infinity Pool because. My God, that movie. <laughs> yeah, I still got to see that, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, man, you want to talk about experiences this year. That was that was certainly one of them. <laughs> yeah, that was a midnight screening at Sundance, right? Yes, it was. Yeah, I was in bed. <laughs> All right, let's head on over now to questions from the fans. Let's see what the MVP film community had to ask us for this week's show. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Uh, Edward Douglas, if the SAG strike were to end this week, do you think anything will move back to December, even if they get a limited Oscar qualifying release? Now, I think that the release dates will stay the same for everything. Yeah, you got to figure when they announce a release date change, that is the the end result of a lot of meetings and discussions and moving things around. And to just reverse that is not easy. So I think once they've picked something, they're going to stick to it. You rarely see, I don't think I've ever seen something move back with significance with a significant amount of time and and if you're going to move something back for awards consideration you only have a few weeks to rejigger the whole thing i I don't think there's enough time uh from james scott in honor of matthew perry man that was devastating news yesterday do any of you have any specific memories regarding watching friends or any other moments in his career well, for people like me who have sarcasm running through their veins, I think his performance as Chandler is like essential comedic urtext to, you know, a lot of people with that kind of sensibility just really laid the groundwork for an entire comedic archetype, really. Yeah, I I remember watching him. Do you guys remember that movie with him and Bruce Willis, The Whole Nine Yards? Yeah. 
I remember watching that in a hotel on vacation. <laughs> and I actually then saw the whole 10 yards after that um, because I, I enjoyed the first one enough that I wanted to watch the second one, <laughs> uh, which I didn't like. His film career wasn't really that uh, prolific, though. Not, not like what he did in television. And it also seemed like, to me... You know, it's it's really sad. He's 50, 54 years old. It, it, it kind of felt like he was getting a second wind, you know? Or something was brewing up for maybe a comeback of some sorts. Especially after the Friends reunion, you know? And he was very frank about his troubles in his book. Yes. And I think it was a lot of a lot of empathy people were giving to him, you know, for his struggle and the fact that he seemed to have risen above it. Yeah. R.I.P. Matthew Perry. Uh, from Adam Clay, do you think Wonka is being an underestimated in the awards race? I think it's possible it could get some tech noms uh, and some major noms at the Globes, especially if it's well-liked and a box office hit. I could certainly see costumes and perhaps production design. I could see that happening too. Um, I don't want to be that guy because at the end of the day, I need to see the final performance. But everything I see from Timothy in the trailer uh, screams Razzie to me. Yeah. It's just like, I don't know, something about that performance just totally feels off to me a little bit. Um, but, you know, Paul King, you know, the Paddington films, maybe I should have a little bit more faith. Yep. I was skeptical of the first Paddington film, and what a surprise that turned out to be. Mm-hmm. Matthew Anderson, do you think there's a world where Yorgos Lanthimos can upset in director over Nolan, or is Nolan's overdue narrative just too strong? I will say this, from everyone I've talked to in New York, L.A., at FYC events, the general consensus when this gets brought up in conversation is everyone is saying it just feels like it's Nolan's time. Yeah, yeah I it, agree. Mm-hmm. It feels like his time is a hard narrative to break, um, especially for a director who hasn't won before. You know, it's easier to disregard somebody like Spielberg, who does have two Oscars, but it's still early. I just have not seen any energy for Oppenheimer really slow down. I've seen people kind of say things like, you know, it's, it came out in July, so who knows? It might not last that long. I don't think we have to worry about that. I think it's going to be the story of the Oscars still, especially probably at that point, seven months after it came out. It's going to be a lot of, I uh, remember how fun Barbenheimer was, how great that was last summer. Let's let's reward that time. I think we're at this that point in the campaign where people are saying, oh, things are locked in and you start to hear rumblings about other uh, contenders like Lanthimos, you know, but ultimately the race hasn't changed. Ryan Rabideau, what are your thoughts on the unexpected box office success of Five Nights at Freddy's? Did you guys see those numbers for this? Jeez. No, not yet. I mean, Cody, you've seen it. I, I did not get a chance to see it because the critic screening took place while I was over here in L.A. and I just wasn't able to get out to it but um holy shit i just pulled up the domestic chart <laughs> yeah 78 million yes wow so i mean i have to imagine that's because built-in fan base already from the video games josh josh hutcherson from hunger games the only new major horror movie over halloween weekend right that has to be it so this was a world I am a little too old for this. This was a world I was not aware of. But in doing research for my review, there is a huge fan base for this franchise. It is not just the video game. There's books, there's comics, there's fan lore. Lots of people, you know, really count this as one of their favorite things. So I'm not too surprised. And in fact, 
like I said earlier, even though I don't love this movie, I'm glad that it is hopefully going to inspire younger folks to get into horror movies, especially that PG-13 rating, and to just get to theaters in general, especially because it's streaming on Peacock. So they don't need to go to theaters to see it, but I'm glad they are, especially because a movie like this really can thrive with a big crowd in the audience. And when even good horror movies get sometimes get a C cinema score, this got an A minus. Yeah, that that what did not surprise me to hear. Again, the buzz from clear fans after the movie was just very exciting. They clearly loved it. And if the cinema score is a rating of an audience's expectations being met, then you got to figure people who are at opening night for Five Nights at Freddy's really want to see what they want to see on screen. And this movie, from what I've heard and have gathered from my own research, really does give the fans exactly what they want. Does it like upset anybody that? There's been so much discourse around Killers of the Flower Moon, its runtime, this talk about intermissions, and yet then audiences are literally telling the studios with their wallets, this is what we want to see, not this. I think all of the chatter is just a sign that it is making an impact, period. You know, the fact that people have an opinion about its length means they're thinking about it and want to see it. And that's all good. (laughs) That's a good way of looking at it, yeah. Yeah, my audience anecdotally for that movie was... Not what I thought it would be. You know, this kind of movie feels like the kind of film that might attract an older audience, especially on like a weekday when I saw it. It was a lot of 35 and under. I was very surprised. The the older audience are still not going out to the movies, which is insane at this point. Yeah, Yeah, like COVID, like as someone who has like an older mom who loves going, who used to love going to the movies, like COVID really like fucked that up. Because now she's like afraid to be around huge crowds of people. Mm -hmm. Like we went to see Mission Impossible together and she was like, I could tell she was really uncomfortable. And it's sad. Yeah. But also too, it's like I'm I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not going to chastise anyone for feeling that they don't feel safe, you know, going in large crowds like that. Like you said, it is what it is. You know, I'm just very surprised though that given the vaccinations that are out there and I don't know how much time has passed. You would think that um, people would feel better about going back now, but maybe that still needs to take some time. I think it's not for everybody a safety issue. I think two-ish years of movies being prioritized with streaming in mind really changed people's brain in terms of how they watch things. You know, I I know a lot of people who are like, I'll just wait for streaming for everything, not just the movies that you know are going to tumble into streaming, like the Marvel movies or the DC movies, everything. And that's frustrating as somebody who loves and values the cinematic experience you know like you said matt i have much more sympathy for people who are still apprehensive for health reasons but i do think some people just got accustomed to staying in their house and watching things on their couch and don't want to change that anytime soon and and unfortunately it's kind of changed the nature of the business because a lot of independent theaters are in trouble because the older audiences that support say movies that are released by Sony Pictures Classics or uh, titles that are designed for older audiences that they used to flock to are having trouble. And it's and it's impacting the viability of a lot of these uh, independent theaters, which is very concerning. Ezra Cubero, which movie released this year have you rewatched the most? John Wick, Chapter four. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's Oppenheimer because I kept trying to find a 70 millimeter screening in which the projector didn't break down. And I finally, on my third try, found one. <laughs> For me, it's also Oppenheimer because I went home to visit my parents and was like, we got to go see Oppenheimer <laughs> in a mall parking lot, as you do. Yeah, I saw Oppenheimer <laughs> three times in the theater. 
but it's not the most. Like I said, John Wick still takes the cake. <laughs> I still haven't seen that once. I think I've seen John Wick at least five times. Jeez. Wow. What about you, Sarah? Um, most of the movies I've rewatched, I've just rewatched like twice. So that would be like Barbie, uh, John Wick, and uh, Mission Impossible. By the way, shout out to Lionsgate out there for actually giving John Wick Chapter 4 a proper rewards campaign. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know what it will materialize in, but I'm just very happy that they're doing it. All right, let's uh, go through a series of other Halloween horror movie questions here to wrap things up. So let's head on over to Kaleeb New SA. Uh, Halloween is in two days. Do you have like any favorite horror movies in general or just stuff that's like in your daily rotation during this time of year? So, uh, yes, <laughs> every year I watch Halloween, obviously, either on Halloween itself or around this time of year. And I have a list of favorites that I kind of rotate through every few years. I don't want to watch the same horror movies every year because I don't want to I want them to get stale. But usually it's some combination of The Shining, Blair Witch, Scream, just those classics I'll always revisit every few years or so. Yeah, I don't have a rotation, but um, some favorites of mine are The Exorcist, Scream, Cabin in the Woods. Oh, that's so much fun. That's so fun. Yeah. Also, I don't watch this every year, and it's not scary, but if you're looking for perfect autumnal vibes and a beautiful film – I love watching The Village, the M. Night Shyamalan film. It's one of my favorites, and it's a perfect autumnal masterpiece. I'm I'm a big defender of that movie, and if you like it, please get in my DMs because we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Edwin Araz, in honor of Spooky Season, which horror movie franchise do you think is the most consistent in terms of quality and scares? I have an answer right off the top of my tongue. It is Scream. Yep, it's Scream. It's not even my favorite, but it is the most consistent by far. Every single one of those films is at least good or has redeeming qualities, which cannot be said of some of my even favorite franchises like Halloween or Saw. And you know what, too? I'll also throw a bone towards the Evil Dead franchise. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Those are all those are five good movies. Not really any issues there. Uh, Grace Kogan, given that Halloween is on Tuesday, this marks the 50th anniversary could you summarize what The Exorcist means to you both as a film and as a staple of American pop culture? Well, The Exorcist to me remains not only my favorite horror movie of all time, but one of my favorite movies of all time, period. I think that that movie, um, when I saw it at a young age, just had such a visceral impact on me um, and scared, truly scared me, like really, really scared me. And part of it was because, and even as I got older, I think it scared me even more. It was because of how grounded it is. And how realistic it's uh, depicted in the movie. And I mean that in the sense that um, you spend time with these characters. And these characters give performances that are very relatable. And the idea of the supernatural, especially when it's intertwined with religion, is still something growing up like in a Catholic household that just really resonated with me. And seemed like a distinct possibility to some degree or another. Um, so there was always this element of like, is the exorcist like real? Can this really happen? Um, and so you couple that along with, um, I just think all time great sound work, uh, some really, really good writing and, um, expert direction from the dearly departed, uh, William Freakin. Like that movie to me is perfect top to bottom. 
Yeah, uh, it definitely is effective to nearly everybody who watched it, especially if you have a Catholic background. Like, my dad was an altar boy, and he will not go into that movie. But for people like myself who are not religious, I for a long time struggled with this movie because I found it so effective and scary and well-made. But I, it is easy to kind of read it as just, you know, and thank you, God, for saving the day, which is not something I necessarily want to see in my movies. But I've come around to this read on it that it's really about how you have to be prepared for evil or bad misdeeds in any situation, but not fear them. And, you know, I've seen people say that this is even I've seen the read go so incorrectly that I think people refer to this as like a conservative movie because it's about a mom who is independent and raising her woman or raising her daughter on her own and requires the help of these men. And like the new ex just even like weirdly tips its hat to that read, which I think is a disservice because I think it's a little bit ignorance of a read. I think the movie, the thing about it is it is a such a strong metaphor for uh, the, the vigilance needed to operate in this world that you see a 24 movies and movies like it's in the horror world nowadays attempting to have that kind of strong metaphor for real life traumas and perils in their horror movies and doing it a bit more heavy handed. And I think the gracefulness with the exorcist executes that with is part of its power. Tom, were you in the theater for exorcist's release? I was, I was, it was, uh, when it came out uh, and if it, it was phenomenal, people were terrified of going and there were, and there was proven vomit in the, in the, the theater. Oh my God. P, you know, if you ever go on, it's, it's, you can see the reactions online. Uh, if you just type in exorcist audience reactions, you're going to see, and it's absolutely true. People were terrified of going. And once they were there, they come, would come out and they'd be physically shaking. And there were real people. It wasn't like, you know, hired people by Warner Brothers to try and make it, make the gin it up. It was real. And it was um, something that no one had seen before. And I don't think anyone has seen since in terms of the visceral reaction from general audiences. Okay, um, so now I'm going to end this week's show by asking each one of you whether you are dressing up or not for Halloween. Do you have like a Halloween costume that you have planned to wear or at least we're just like kind of thinking about like, oh, I'm not dressing up. But if I were, I would be doing this. Oh, Matt, I dress up every year. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I miss a Halloween yet, even in some even if the costumes are minimal based on what I'm doing in that year, even like in COVID year, I still dress up just to sit on my, sit on my couch. <laughs> um, this year I'm going as Heather from the Blair Witch Project. So I have, you know, a little flannel, I have uh, a beanie and I have some, I have a, a stick figure based on, you know, the stick guys in the, the movie. And my friend let me borrow his camcorder from the nineties, which is really heavy, but I'm committed to the parts. So I'll be carrying it around. I love that. That's awesome. I'm not dressing up this year for Halloween, but I was trying to think of movie characters from 2023 I could dress up as, and I settled on the dipshit lawyer from Anatomy of a Fall. (laughs) 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 Not the hot one, okay? Like, I was like, oh, I could pull that off because, of course, I'm looking for bald characters in 2023. (laughs) I wanted to like roll up to my office in like those like inflatable dinosaur costumes, 
because I think they're so funny and just like run down the hall. <laughs> but <laughs> and then I was like, but how would I like sit down and like type? So I don't know. I got to figure that out. I'll, I think I'll do it next year instead. Okay, and fair see enough. See how that goes. I'm generally not a costume person. What I was probably, I, if it was a movie character that resembled anything, anybody that looked like me, it would probably be Bradley Whitford and Get Out, and I'd wear a sign that said, <laughs> "I don't, I vote for Obama a third time." <laughs> Jesus, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that'll do it here for episode 366 of the Next Best Picture podcast. Cody Derricks, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet. You can find me all over the place at CodyMonster91 on every social media platform. And if you're looking for something spooky to listen to in the next few days, I have my own horror movie podcast called Halloweeners, a horror movie podcast. Give us a listen. Sarah Clements. You can find me on Twitter at Mildred Spears. And Tom O'Brien. For more AFI stuff, you can follow me on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 366 of the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of the Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.